blessing it is to study the books of the Bible, and I like studying them in an organized fashion so I know what I am studying and I'm able to absorb it. And sometimes those of us who are preachers use various memory devices so we can be able to remember what it is we've studied and try to recall it as best we can. And I have tried to use the letter S to stand for each of the chapters that we've studied each week. The first chapter was Jonah shirking his responsibility that God had given him. Chapter 2 was Jonah swallowed, swallowed by not only a great fish, but he was swallowed by the sorrow for his sins. Tonight we're going to look at Jonah speaking as God has commanded him to do so. And then, Lord willing, if you're with us next Sunday evening, we're going to look at Jonah's stubborn, uh, which that represents, I'm afraid, too many of us, is the fact that we do what God says to do sometimes, but we're stubborn in doing that. Let's talk about second chances. Are you glad for second chances? Think about, for instance, in school. I can tell you more than once when I was a student in high school and even in college, a teacher would give a test and everybody in the class would do what we call bomb the test. We'd do a bad job and the teacher would come along and say, I'm going to give you guys a second chance. Now I'm telling you this is what's going to be on the test and if you don't make it this time, it's going to be tough luck for you. But I'm thankful for those second chances. Many of us have enjoyed a second chance at work. Maybe our supervisor, our boss has come to us and said to us, you made a real big mistake. Now you are going to have to correct that mistake, but I'm not going to fire you. I'm going to give you a second chance. But are you not also thankful for second chances spiritually? You know, God could have in his divine justice, looked at each and every one of us individually and said, they messed up, they sinned, and therefore I am going to destroy them. You know, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 is pretty blunt. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. I'm thankful for second chances. Jonah was given an opportunity to do what he was told to do the first time. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. So here's what we're going to do as we look at chapter 3. There are going to be five basic ideas, and don't think this is going to be a super long lesson because I actually tried to plan if you wanted to make it central, you'd be able to do so. But there are five thoughts. First of all, the second chance in verse 1, the sight of Nineveh, verses 2 and 3. The sermon that he preached in verse 4. And then the sincerity of those people who obeyed the message in verses 5 through 9. And then finally they were safe in verse 10. Let's look first of all at the idea of the second chance. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. What's interesting, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, other than the words the second time and Jonah the son of Amittai, exactly the same charge. 
No change. There's no change in the needs. The people of Nineveh still need the message. But you see, the truth is, God hasn't given up on man. He didn't give up on Jonah, nor did he give up upon the Ninevites. That's significant. Sometimes when someone tells us no, we say, okay, they don't want to do it, and we give up. But God doesn't. God didn't give up on Jonah. Jonah, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I tried to teach you a lesson with that big fish. Okay, Lord, I'm going to go. Do you know when you look at us, you ask the question, why has God been so patient with us? 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want one soul to be lost. In Luke 22 and verse 32, God had told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. When you see your brothers and sisters falling, just like you will, Peter, you've got a second chance. Strengthen them. But perhaps one of the passages that caught my mind was Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, Paul is writing to the church which has within it both Jews and Gentiles. And here's the message that he starts out with, is that God had a divine plan that he was working together. And what happened was the message first went to the Jews, but the Jews rejected it. On a wholesale basis, the majority of them said, we're not going to obey it. Then that hastened the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles then became a very strong element within the Lord's church. And the question comes up about what about the Jews? Notice with me verses 23 through 24. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted in contrary to the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? What he's saying is he's given a figure. God's given second chances. But let's move to the idea of the sight. You know, in biblical discussions, many times you will have the sight of Jericho. You'll have the sight of Jerusalem. Well, here in verses 2 and 3, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I will tell you, or that I tell you. So Jonah went and arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three-day journey in extent. Nineveh was an impressive place. It was a great city. You know, many of you have traveled some. You've gone to some large cities like New York City. You're amazed to see those huge skyscrapers and thousands and thousands of people living there. You may go into some of the other larger cities like Philadelphia, 
Houston, Texas, Los Angeles, California. Maybe you've traveled overseas and you've seen some of those huge cities as well. Well, Nineveh was one of them. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Today, if you go to Mosul, Iraq, right on the outskirts of town is the remnants of the city of Nineveh. In fact, I don't know how many of you noticed, but there was actually a tomb of Jonah that was there in Nineveh. And uh, those people destroyed that tomb here just a few weeks ago. An ancient tomb, they destroyed it. But that's where it's located. Strabo, the historian, said that it was larger than Babylon. Babylon was the capital of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. He said Nineveh was even larger than that. Here's what history tells us about the city. It was surrounded by walls 100 feet high. From the floor to the ceiling in this building is 23 feet. The walls that surrounded were four times the height of this ceiling. Not only that, it was so broad, so wide, that three chariots could go side by side on top of those walls. Around that wall was 1,500 towers. And each of those towers, 200 feet in height. That in and of itself would just make the city an impressive place to view. You get to Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock. Not just 120,000 people live there. They believe a certain group of young people, children, was 120,000. But then we move to the third aspect. When you get to verse 4, and you have the sermon that was preached by Jonah. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, then he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now will you take your songbooks and stand? That's, that's, the, that's the sermon. Short sermon. Powerful sermon. Simple sermon. Judgment in forty days. Didn't take long to deliver that one. But let me point some details out to you about that. That sermon was confrontational. That sermon was condemning. It pointed out clear consequences for sin. You know, that's not really what most people are wanting to hear these days. We're not wanting some sermon where the preacher walks in the pulpit and says, you sinners are going to burn. Luke 1 and verse 17, talking about... John the Baptist, he also will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Drop down to chapter 3, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes who came to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, something I learn when I read and study the Bible is that the prophets of old 
And those who preached God's message did not tiptoe around the truth. They told it just like it was. Now I want you to contrast that with the cotton candy kind of preaching done by these televangelists today on TV like Joel Olstein. Joel Olstein dresses up real nice. He's a real handsome type man. He gets on there. He tells people about making money. He talks about being healthy. He talks about being happy. But he never once mentions this three-lettered word, sin. Because sin is what was the problem for the people of Nineveh. And Jonah was going to tell them, 40 days, that's a familiar number. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 28, while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, 40 days. Or 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 5 through 8, talking about again being on Elijah being on the mountain of God, Horeb, for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days, and it's going to be until Nineveh will be overthrown. What does that mean? Overthrown. That means that God is going to bring a judgment upon it. Was the overthrowing going to take place by a natural calamity? Could have. Would God bring some sort of fire and brimstone out of heaven? Could have. Could God have brought a, a powerful nation against them? Could have. Forty days and the nation would no longer exist. In Genesis 19:29, and it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Where was Sodom? Where was Gomorrah? Archaeologists are still looking for them today. They believe they're in the, the area of the southern part of the Dead Sea. Problem is, God overthrew those cities so completely, it's hard to find any remnants of them. Or you go to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Where are the Chaldeans today? Where is the nation of Babylon? Doesn't exist. When God overthrows you, you are overthrown. Now that message worked. Read with me now verses 5 through 9 as we go through this passage. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came from the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat, drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
Who can tell if God will relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? How can you tell if a person's penitence is real and their repentance is sincere? How can you look at someone who says, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I want to ask your forgiveness. How can you tell when someone walks to the front pew in a service and said, I'm sorry for my sins. I want you to pray for me. I want God to forgive me. How can I tell? Immediately, sometimes I can't tell. I've got to take your word for it. You've got to take my word for it. But ultimately, you can tell. In Luke chapter 3, in verse 8, John the Baptist said, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. I could paraphrase that by saying, Show me you have repented by the way that you act. If you've really repented, you're going to change your life. You're going to do things differently. Following up with that in verses 10 through 14, so the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He has food, let him do likewise. And the tax collectors also came to be baptized. He said to them, Teacher, and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. You see, when a person repents, there's things that they do that illustrate that they've repented. One of the best passages to teach someone with that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. You see, in 1 Corinthians, Paul rebuked the church there sharply. He enumerated a number of things that were wrong within the congregation. They were teaching wrong about the Lord's Supper and practicing wrong about the Lord's Supper. They were teaching wrong about the resurrection of Christ, chapter 15. You can go back to chapter 5 and they were tolerating open sin in the congregation and not doing anything about it. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, it was tough. Their reception of it wasn't completely positive either. But when you get to verse 10, he says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Paul said you, you reacted in such a way that you can tell it. Let me ask you a question. How do you know that the people of Nineveh really repented? You say, well, God didn't destroy them. But you see, they demonstrated sincerity. All the way from the greatest of them to the least of them, including the king. They took off their comfortable clothes and they put on sackcloth. 
Think of the burlap that will be used in the nursery industry. How would you like to wear that as clothes? Rough to the skin. Sitting in ashes. This wasn't just symbolic. This was to indicate the sadness of the soul. They believed that God would do exactly what he said and they acted accordingly. They sat fasting and sackcloth and ashes praying to God that he would relent. Well, we get now to the last verse, to verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, based upon their repentance, God relented from the harm. But you know, that's a biblical teaching. God pronounces judgment upon those who sin, but then God is willing to change based upon our actions. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10 is perhaps one of the clearest passages because God was begging through Jeremiah for the people of Judea to change. Wanted them to change. And so he uses an illustration. He says, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house and watch what's going on with this potter. And as that wheel is spinning, the pottery mars in the potter's hands. What does the potter do? He takes it and he reshapes it according to whatever he wants it to be. And so here's the application. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent from the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And at the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. See, God is looking at Nineveh and he says, if you'll change and do what's right, I'll relent from the doing of the harm. Jeremiah 26.3 says, perhaps everyone will listen. Turn from his evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I propose to bring upon them because of the evil of their doings. God is saying, I don't want you to die. In fact, Ezekiel 33.11 puts it very plainly. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I will have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God does not want anyone to die. And that's the only way to be in a safe relationship is to be right with God. The people of Nineveh were not safe. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. After the preaching of Jonah and their repentance, they were safe. Jonah was an unwilling but an effective communicator. You know, sometimes those of us who preach really want people to change. 
we really want to cooperate with God. We want to be like Isaiah. Here am I, Lord, send me. Give me an opportunity to reach some of these people. And then when you preach, you don't always connect. But you take somebody like Jonah, who didn't want to do the job, and I am sure he probably wasn't very kind and very pleasant when he was saying 40 days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown, but he was effective. What's the reason? There's power in the message. Romans 1 and verse 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. You can take an unwilling, cranky old man and have him preach the truth, and that truth can reach people. It's not the minister. It's not the preacher. It's the message. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living, it's powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word is able to pierce the hardest heart because it's His message, because it's truth. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, what we would like to encourage you to do is when we sing this invitation song, is come to the front will allow you to state your faith in Christ before this audience and then assist you as you are baptized for the remission of your sins. If you are a Christian, you're struggling with sin in your life, be thankful God has given you a second chance. But don't ignore His call. Don't ignore His opportunity. If you need to come, please do so while we stand and sing.